HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the issues that shape our everyday experiences of buying, cooking, and eating food. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from my home, Shelter in Place Style, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined on the line by Mark Kurlansky. Mark is the New York Times bestselling author of Cod, Salt, paper, and 1968, among other titles. In 2018, I was lucky enough to interview Mark when his book, Milk, A 10,000-Year Food Fracas, came out. And today, I'm excited to have him back on the show to discuss his new book, Salmon, A Fish, the Earth, and the History of Their Common Fate, which is published by Patagonia and available now. Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So you... I don't know if you remember, but at the end of our episode, way back in 2018, you gave me a tiny little teaser on what you might be working on next. And I invited you right then and there to come back on the show now, which uh, you accepted. So I am uh, very happy that you are indeed a, wor- a man of your word. <laughs> well, it happens sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, great. So uh, this book is amazing. I... I don't know which one I love more, um, to tell you the truth, milk or this one, but it might even, it might be salmon, which I just thought it was, I, you know, I learned so much and I'm so excited to talk to you about it today. So let's just, let's just start with a very basic question that might not be so basic, but what is a salmon and how long have they been in existence? Oh, well, uh, salmonids uh, have been in, in, in existence um, for many thousands of years, um, and actually have been 
eaten by humans for more than 2,000 years. I mean, we know this. We have records. We even have records of uh, um, prehistoric men in caves drawing pictures of salmon. Um, so, so we're not the first. <laughs> no. And we're trying not to be the last. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. And so what So what defines a salmon then? Uh well, that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, I mean, salmons are um, are all part of the salmonid family. Uh, there are uh, seven species. They belong to two different uh, genera, uh, one genus in the Atlantic and one in the Pacific. Um, and <clears throat> it's a little confusing because, you know, there are all these things called trout that are in there also. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what a trout is, except that it's not a salmon. So, <laughs> you know, so brown trout is of the same uh, genus as Atlantic salmon. Um, there's a whole bunch of trout, rainbow and cutthroat in California, that are of the same genus as Pacific salmon. And, and some trout are of the genus of char, like a brook trout. Is of the char genus, which mm-hmm. that genus doesn't have any salmon. So trout are uh, in many ways similar to salmon. Um, they usually don't go to sea, but some do. And uh, um, uh, salmon are uh, of these different groups uh, with considerable differences in species. And the, 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 one, of, one of the strengths of a salmon is that it's very adaptable. Mm-hmm. So um, even if you have two salmon that are of the same species, but they were raised in two different rivers, mm-hmm. they will have uh, DNA that is more different than your DNA and mine. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. How, I, how is that even possible? <laughs> Well, uh, because they're so adaptable and they, you know, does the, is the river have a fast current or a slow current? Does it have waterfalls to leap over? Uh, what is the chemical content of the river? Oh. Salmon adapts to its home river. And so which is why that's the only one that it will go back to. Right. Oh, well, we're going to talk about all about the life cycle of salmon in just a minute. But so, we, so you kind of were starting to break down the the genus. There are you said two different genera, Atlantic and Pacific. What are I'm assuming? I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume the Atlantic salmon is the or the Atlantic genera is in fact Atlantic salmon. Did I get that right? Uh, the, the the genera is salmo. Okay. Oh, okay. Genus. It's genus salmo. And the, the uh, species is Atlantic salmon. Okay, the species is Atlantic. And then in the Pacific, where or what are there? Polar, actually, if you want to use the correct term. Okay. It all I... means it all means leaping, leaping, jumping. The the Romans were very impressed with their ability, not their ability, but the salmon's ability to jump, and they named them for it. Oh, okay. And so what are the other different kinds of salmon that are found in the Pacific then? So well, we have Atlantic Pacific, and then, the, yeah. This Pacific genus is Ocorhynchus, which basically means hook nose. Um, and they develop a hook nose when they're spawning, or the males do. Um, 
And there are uh, a lot more species, uh, six or seven, uh, depending on how you count them, of Ocarinchus. So what that tells us is that the Pacific has a lot more variety of settings than the Atlantic. That, um, you know, as I said, in different rivers, they take on different characteristics. And when those characteristics uh, become different enough, then they become a separate species. So that has happened a lot in the Pacific. It hasn't happened at all in the Atlantic. In the Atlantic, there's only Atlantic salmon. In the Pacific, there's king and sockeye and chum and coho and uh, masu and... Um, uh, pink? Is pink one of them? Pink, yes. And what about steelheads? Are those a thing? Yes, a steelhead. This gets into an interesting question. A steelhead is a rainbow trout that goes to sea and basically grows into a salmon. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, these fish, when they leave the river for the sea, they gain 95% of their size. Um, so this uh, rainbow trout goes to sea and comes back this huge uh, silver pink flesh fish, a salmon. So, so it literally like changes essentially from yeah. one type of fish to another. Um, what are the, so let's talk about the life cycle because maybe, maybe more people were paying attention, you know, in like their fifth grade biology class. And maybe I learned this, but forgot, but I found the whole process to be like, to be so fascinating. Um, can you walk us through just kind of like from birth to death, the yeah, life cycle it, of a salmon? It's such an incredible animal and it, it's, uh, um, I always think it, it, it the, the life story of the salmon seems like it was written by a Greek tragedian. It's <laughs> an incredible story. So, um, you know, they're born, eggs are laid in, in a gravel bed in certain parts and certain rivers, and they grow in the rivers. And when they become big enough, like about herring size, they go to the mouth of the river and they change their skin uh, because in the river they have this very nice striped or spotted look, which camouflages nicely in the river, but would stand out in the ocean. So to prepare for ocean life, they become silver, which is the best camouflage at sea. Um, but they also change their biology. They, they turn from a freshwater uh, fish to a saltwater fish and have to do a lot of chemical and physical changes to do that. They do all that in the mouth of the river. Then they go out in the river, in the, in the sea, for years, uh, swimming thousands of miles, uh, growing to be very large. And then at a certain point, and, you know, how many years varies depending on the species, uh, but at a certain point, they come back to the river that they were born, which is in itself incredible because, you know, at this point, they are thousands of miles away from that river. Right. And they go, exactly what river to go to and where to find it. And they, they come into the river and they stop eating, uh, which is nature's uh, way of making things work because the salmon at sea has become such a voracious eater that if you did that in the river, it would clean out the river. So they just stop eating and they live on the um, protein and fat that they have gained eating in the ocean. And 
they start swimming um, upstream because they not only have to spawn in the river of their birth, they have to spawn in the exact spot where they were born. Like the exact yeah. spot. Yeah. And they, they somehow know where this is, just like they know what river to go into. They know where to go when they get into the river. Some of these rivers have incredible currents, powerful currents, and they, they, they put their head into the current and, you know, they, 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 they advance just centimeter by centimeter. But they just keep advancing. They're unstoppable. They leap over waterfalls or other obstacles. The salmon can jump 11 feet in the air. It's amazing. You know, it'd be like a human being, you know, pound for pound. They could jump 50 feet. 50, yeah. Wow. And um, they... uh, They're absolutely unstoppable. I've seen places where... They're jumping over waterfall, and some of them make it, and some of them don't. And the ones that don't fall back on the rocks, and they kind of shake themselves off and go again and again and again until they get it. They, 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 salmon will not quit. They will not give up. And they, um, they do this very strange thing. They completely change their look. Mm-hmm. Uh, Slightly different depending on the species, but basically they turn bright red and instead of silver mm-hmm. and they get, um, when they get back to the river. So they, this yeah. is like the, the second, the males, the males okay. yeah. they develop hook noses and kind of weird distorted faces, huge humps on their back. And Darwin was very pu- puzzled by this because Darwin believed that people, that in nature, nothing happens by chance. It's always for a purpose. So what was the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. I wonder what the purpose was of beetles growing antlers that they never used. Or or why does a peacock have this elaborate feather? What's it for? Mm-hmm. And what he eventually came to realize is that it was to attract the females. <laughs> this was the most unpopular idea that Darwin had. I mean, Victorian <laughs> men hated this idea that it was natural for men to dress up to attract women. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but, it, but that is exactly what happens. You know, you look at this a sockeye salmon. It's so weird looking. It's bright red and, you know, this hook nose, misshapen mouth and this hump on its back. And I always think it's like, it's like you see this guy in this very gaudy plaid suit and you say, <laughs> Why, why are you dressed like that? And he says, oh, the girls like it. But they do. <laughs> wow. Wow. The, the thing is, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to do this. Right. I can the way they turn red is that they pump all of the pigment out of their flesh. So that a salmon, by the time a salmon spawns, its flesh is white. Um, by the time... They get to the spawning ground. They just barely have enough energy left to spawn. And then they have had it and they just roll over and die. Wow. So it's just like literally every last ounce of energy is drained from their body. Absolutely. To assure the continuance of the species. Um, so that which we are actively trying to um, destroy. <laughs> 
which it seems it, it seems like that is a a pretty main point of your book. But this is that it. I just found it all so absolutely fascinating. Um, and do we know where they go when they go out to sea? That was that was another question. I'm like, where are they going? We don't exactly. I mean, a lot, a lot of people are studying this now, trying to figure it out, and. Yeah. And like, you know, why? We're learning some things from time to time. Like we, we learned that um, the salmon uh, that were off of Greenland, Greenland doesn't have any salmon rivers, but salmon swim off of Greenland and places in um, England and France uh, came to realize that uh, it was their salmon. They realized that when it didn't come back, because they were catching it off of Greenland, oh. <laughs> uh, they've actually stopped that fishery. Um, but we don't. Uh, we don't exactly know where they go. Um, usually, that's how we learn. You know, like we learn that uh, the uh, the salmon, the sockeye, and above the Puget Sound, uh, belong in a river in British Columbia that they're headed for, you know, which was also a huge uh, fight. The Canadians said, you know, you got to stop taking our salmon. And it's, it's generally come to be recognized that the salmon belong to the, to the river of their birth. Mm -hmm. So if the river of their birth is in Canada and they're swimming in Washington state, they're, they're not American salmon, they're Canadian. Okay. Got it. So what, um, and are there particular, like, you know, geographical regions or, you know, cultures where salmon has been of, of particular importance to a population's diet? You mentioned Greenland, Iceland, right? Yeah. Um, Norway, um, certain parts of Russia, um, Native Americans, Northern Native Americans, um, it's central to their diet, uh, native Alaskans. Um, these people have their, their whole life and culture centered on the salmon. Um, this was also true of the natives of uh, New England and Maritime Canada. Um, so what is the, what is the ideal environment for, um, a salmon to, live in like their what what should their natural environment be and what can you kind of describe the role they play in supporting the ecosystem both on land and in water yeah well we we know what their ideal uh environment is because there's only a couple of places left um that have plentiful salmon and mainly alaska and the kamchatka peninsula and pacific russia and what do these two places have in common very few people live there there's a short growing season, so there's almost no agriculture. Um, you know, what, what the best thing that can happen to salmon is for there to be no people around because we just do bad things. Um, what, what was the second part of your question? I don't how they kind of, you know, the role that they play in supporting the ecosystem. So oh, how yeah, they're intertwined. Yeah. Uh, you know, Darwin talked about how if you lose a species – that is a big problem for other species. Um, and the survival of all species depends on there being lots of species around, <clears throat> what uh, became known as biodiversity. 
Darwin didn't use that word. That was a mm -hmm. word from the 80s. Um, but all species aren't equal. Some species are more important than others. And salmon is what is called the keystone species. It's uh, tremendously important to a lot of other species. Uh, when they die in the river, they nourish the river for um, fish and other life to live there. Um, they feed uh, a whole variety of birds. Uh, they feed bears. They feed uh, marine mammals. Um, they, they are just central to that whole ecosystem. And if, if the salmon were lost, uh, some of these other species would be lost and then what would be lost because those species were gone. I mean, the whole natural order could easily unravel without salmon. I was interested to learn also like what, you know, basically what an ideal river or how the river would be constructed in a way that is, um, well, natural for the environment, but also more ideal for the salmon in terms of the different like twists and turns and, um, you know, trees that may be on the riverbank and, and whatnot. Yes, definitely forested riverbanks are very important. The um, stuff from the trees falls in the river and helps nourish the river. The trees also provide shade. Um, salmon uh, can't tolerate any kind of heat, including too much sunlight, so they look for shady spots. And uh, trees fall in the river and they create um, uh, sort of pools by currents. Um, are, are you a fly fisherman? Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> what fly fishermen look for is they look for still pools that are by swift running water. And uh, uh, trees that fall in the river uh, help create that. What it is, is it's a, it's a situation that makes it very easy for the fish to feed mm -hmm. to rest in the pool and then reach in to the, the fast running part where the food is flying by or an artificial fly in the case may mm. be. <laughs> uh, it's the basic premise of fly fishing. Um, so trees are, uh, oh, and another thing about trees is, is that they hold the banks. Mm. So they, yeah. keep, they keep the river deep and, and rivers that have deforested banks tend to get wider and more shallow. So right. uh, wooded banks are, are, are extremely important. Which One means thing. farming by rivers isn't good and homes by rivers isn't good. And, you know, parking lots and shopping malls and anything by river banks is not good. I mean, even hiking trails aren't that great because they, gets... they disturb the insect life that uh, um, the fish need. Um, you know, salmon like trout are insectivores when they're in the rivers. Hmm. Um, so, uh, speaking of rivers, when, you said that they can sometimes, when they are you know returning to their place of birth to spawn, that they can only move like an you know an inch at a time. How long does it take? You know. Uh, in general, like a salmon to make that trip back out? I mean, obviously, sure, it varies with the, with the river, but is there kind of like an average amount of time in a salmon's life cycle? Well, it, varies, it varies with the river and it varies with the species. Hmm. Uh, you know, from weeks to months. Um, but uh, 
um, you know, and, and also the distance. Some spawning grounds are closer to the ocean than others. Mm -hmm. you know, in the West, there are spawning grounds deep in the, in the, in the Rockies or, you know, far, far in, in Utah and in Idaho and in places that are far from the Pacific Ocean. Hmm. So that will take them. But, but I mean, it's, it is amazing how just weeks or months just to be swimming <laughs> upstream like that. Without um, eating. Yeah, without eating. I mean, I definitely couldn't be a salmon. It is, that is for <laughs> sure. Um, okay, so in that. Good. They're, they're such outstanding athletes. Right. It was, I mean, just also just to learn how much they, you know, how, how high they can jump. I mean, they're just incredibly impressive. Yeah, or, or some like, like a coho, for example, for some reason that has to do with the habitat that they prefer. Uh, don't jump high, but they're great broad jumpers. You know, they'll jump like eight feet out. Wow. It is amazing. It is, it is quite impressive. Um, okay. Yeah, so when you look at this fish, yeah. you cannot figure out how, you know, it doesn't have any legs to push off with. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just, you can't figure out how it does it. It is, it is, it is a mystery. But it um, is, it's built into them. When you, when you look at um, newly born salmon in hatcheries and tanks, they're jumping. Wow. Yeah. It's innate. So speaking of, um, speaking of, uh, actually not speaking of, I wanted to, <laughs> moving on. Um, I want to ask you about hatcheries a little bit, but first I kind of want to talk a little bit more about what you call the human problem. Um, but, but in, you, you actually open the book, um, by spending time, um, you write about the time that you spent with two very different fishers. Curtis Olson and Thea Thomas. Um, can you tell us like a little bit about them and why you chose to open the book in this way? Well, <clears throat> partly because they're so different and their fisheries are so different. Um, <clears throat> we tend to talk about gill netting and they're both gill netting, but one is a set netter and one is a drip netter. And it's, it's, it's just completely different. So <clears throat> only fish is, uh, um, you know, in an aluminum skiff, uh, the thing is filthy. He's filthy. <laughs> he's he's a sheep shearer from Montana, and he's hired on this whole bunch of kids from Montana who have never been to sea. And, you know, they're hauling nets and yanking these fish out and stepping on them on the deck, and it's a, it's a mess. Yeah. And um, they don't... Uh, they don't earn nearly the money per fish um, of the uh, uh, drift net fisheries. What kind of fish is it? What is it the same kind of? What kind of fish sockeye. is it? Yeah, sockeye. Okay. Both, both of these, both of these fishing operations were for sockeye. Okay. Uh, the other one, Thea Thomas, um, she catches uh, what is known in the commercial world as Copper River salmon. It's like the premier salmon mm -hmm. and she catches it in the gulf of alaska uh these are one person boats Thea has been going out by herself single-handed to the open ocean for 30 years wow. um, and uh you know and she doesn't look like a tough old crusty thing only looks <laughs> like a tough old crusty thing Thea is is uh 
you know, she's a very feminine woman. Yeah. And, um, uh, she, she hauls up these nets with these fish. She bleeds them one by one as she pulls them out of the nets, uh, which she, fish are a much higher quality if you bleed them immediately. Mm -hmm. She slides them into a hold she has with ice. And she takes very good care of them. And they're marketed as Copper River salmon for, you know, twice the price of all his salmon, which is Bristol Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's too, com- too commercially successful, but completely different fisheries. And different fish. I mean, they're both sockeye, but it seems like there's a, a difference between the quality. If I, were to, if I were to hold up one of Ollie's uh, sockeye and one of Thea's sockeye, you could immediately see the difference. Hmm. And is there, um, what are the, what are the like, you know, kind of when we're talking about salmon, um, the different culinary like categorizations, which are, which are the most prized? Um, it's, it's not typically sockeye, is it? Uh, well, I suppose king, sometimes called Chinook, is probably the most, I mean, it depends where you are. Mm-hmm. But in, in most of the U.S. and certainly in the West Coast, it is the most prized. Um, although, you know, Atlantic salmon might be if you could get it, but you can't get it anymore. Wild. You can't get wild. Yet, you can't right? get wild because there's no commercial fisheries. Mm. Uh, in Japan... Uh, the most uh, valued uh, salmon is uh, masu, which is a species that's unique to Japan and a few places near Japan in Asia, a very small area. Um, But, you know, it depends. There's one town in Japan that just has a traditional thing for sockeye. Um, You know, these things are are sometimes cultural and hard to explain. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when people, um, what are, what are the stats on, on wild salmon right now? You said there's no commercial fisheries for Atlantic salmon. Do we know how much Atlantic sa- wild Atlantic salmon is left? Yeah. About one and a half million, which is nothing. I mean, when you consider that on a good year, 60 million sockeye swim into Bristol Bay, wow. Alaska, uh, one and a half million is not very much. Right. So, and then what about in the Pacific? Um, I don't know if there's like general population numbers that you would have. Well, you know, I, I don't know um, that they really know. I mean, there's some estimates, but, you know, you can't get accurate estimates till it gets really bad. That's why we yeah. have the Atlantic figure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. But, so- uh so when people are people really eating wild salmon, because I feel like, you know, you kind of it's like and, and we're going to talk about aquaculture uh, a little bit later in the show. But, you know, I mean, think that there is this like you go to a restaurant and there's this distinct, you know, people want to distinguish between like, well, is it farm raised or is it wild or is it wild caught? Like, what are people really, really getting? Because I feel like there might be a bit of fraud in this in this industry. Uh, there's some fraud, but I think there's more confusion. Um, wild caught, you mentioned that term. That was a term that was invented, um, because 
what was happening is that scientists were going around in fish markets and examining the DNA of uh, wild salmon. And a lot of times they were finding that it wasn't wild at all. So everybody thought, well, these people are crooks. Mm -hmm. But it's not really what's happening. What's happening is that um, wild salmon get um, uh, the DNA of hatchery salmon. And so they aren't truly wild uh, in the sense of their DNA, but they're living the life of a wild salmon and they're caught at sea. Mm -hmm. So it's not really a frog. They're just not like purebred basically. Right. And, and the only way to tell is if you do a DNA test on them. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. They're not going to look different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, is there a big difference between the, um, the issues that, the Atlantic salmon were facing, are facing, and that of Pacific salmon? Like, why is the Atlantic so much more overfished? Uh, or is it even overfishing that's the problem? You actually write in the beginning of your book that this is not a book about overfishing. So, yeah, um, I'll tell you. Um, so, I went around to all of these salmon fisheries uh, in the Atlantic and uh, Maine and New England and Canada and, and Ireland and Iceland and Norway and uh, Scotland and everywhere I went, people were telling me that the fish leave the river, they go to sea, and they're not returning at the rates they used to. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is all about climate change. Carbon dioxide loves water. So about a third of the carbon dioxide that's produced on land ends up in the ocean. And it completely alters the hydrogen content of the seawater. And what that does is it slows down the growth process in certain little organisms like zooplankton and little capelin fish and the things that big fish eat. So what's happening is the salmon are going to sea and they're not finding enough to eat. So they don't make it back. Oh, my God. This is also what's happening. It's, it's why, you know, areas like the uh, Gulf of Maine and the, the, the Canadian Grand Banks, where they have really restricted commercial fishing of cod and the cod isn't coming back. Um, the ocean, especially the Atlantic Ocean, is losing its carrying capacity. It's losing its ability to feed the animals that live in the ocean. That oh, is God. the scariest thing I've ever learned. Wow. I mean, you know, if the ocean can't feed the fish, we're in deep, deep trouble. Yeah. They're start, so they're literally starving. Yes. Oh, my God. That is, I mean, it's just terrifying. Is that, and is that happening more in the, like, the? I mean, the effects of climate change, is that more um, pronounced in the Atlantic than the Pacific? Is that... If the phenomena is more pronounced in the Atlantic than the Pacific, I don't know what that says about who is producing more carbon emissions or, or why that is, but yeah. it seems to be noticeably more severe. And in different parts of the Atlantic, too. The, the, the part of the Atlantic that affects uh, New England fish is particularly bad. Um, which no doubt has to do with, I'm sure, like a history of industrialization or, um, you know, 
population, <laughs> I don't know, history of, of pollution in those areas, maybe? Maybe it's just been more developed over time? Maybe over a longer time, but I mean, certainly Japan has its share of industry and industrial pollution. And, uh, oh, that's, yeah, um, that is true. So do many places in the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, may, it may have to do with the fact that the Pacific is larger. Yeah, oh, interesting. Or so it may no have to do, you know, we are the great carbon emission producers of the world. And right. most of our prevailing winds blow to, to the Atlantic, not the Pacific. So I feel like we just solved the, I feel like we just solved the answer to the question. I think you just figured it out. Um, As we used to say in the newsroom, it might be true. It might. <laughs> <laughs> it's being recorded, so it's true. <laughs> Um, one of the things that you talk a bit about is um, the issue of dams. And it's like everything, you know, in the food and ag space, it's complicated because they can be a source of clean power, right? But at the same time, there are, you know, they have these, like, they're very destructive, especially for... They are destructive. Look, yeah. I mean, this, this argument, which is used by the hydroelectric people of it, this is clean energy, you know, so it's a lot better than using fossil fuels. It is better than using fossil fuels, but fossil fuels and hydroelectric dams are not the only alternatives we have available. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop prevent, pre pretending that they are. Um, why are why are dams so, so popular? Is this just something that historically was like the go-to and it just kind of carried on from there. I mean, you talk about. Well, like, it's, yeah. it's different in different places in the Pacific Northwest. It's because the rivers are so powerful. I mean, okay. when, when Lewis and Clark crossed, they got out of the Missouri and they crossed the great divide and got into Western rivers, they were astounded at how dangerous and fast and powerful they were. And, you know, while some people were saying, boy, these rivers are really tough, other people were saying, wow, look how much power this generates. Yeah. Um, in the East, in New England, New England's history is very much like Britain's history. It's about um, mills, small factories uh, that dammed up parts of rivers to get the energy to operate the mill. And, you know, New England is full of thousands and thousands of these little dams. Some of them are wooden and most of them aren't being used anymore because the mills, you know, what are these mills now? They're, they're, they're boutique bistros. Oh. <laughs> you know, the textile industry is gone from New England. So mm -hmm. these dams don't serve any useful purpose. A few of them are hydroelectric, but most of them aren't. Um, the problem, there's a couple of problems. One is that it turns out to be extremely expensive to tear down dams. And part of that expense is that after you tear down the dam, you have to refurbish the river. Mm -hmm. you, know, you take down the dam and there's this rush of water and it's all configured all wrong. You have to put it back and have a gravel bottom and have the kind of river that nature put there or it's not going to be appealing to salmon. Uh, and this is extremely costly. And in New England, there's also an issue that a lot of these dams, you know, they're like 18th century, 19, early 19th century dams uh, for factories that went out of business years and years ago. And nobody really knows who owns these things. 
Really? So they don't, so they can't decide what to do with them. Well, you know, they're afraid that they'll find out who owns it after they tear it down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. So there are some, some barriers, but the truth is that these are massive impediments to, I mean, the fish literally can't, can't get back to where they need to go. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and when you do tear down dams, which has been happening more and more, um, uh, you have a lot to show for it. Uh, Rivers do get restored. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, Relief Opportunities for All Restaurants. Um, so, okay, so there, so these are all the, the, the major problems, which we, I feel like, just even scratch the service on. You go into you know, so much detail, like over the, you know, the course of, um, through generations of, of what has contributed to the demise of the salmon population. Um, let's talk about some of the solutions that you outline in the book. And then of course, the problems with the solutions. <laughs> um, the first thing are hatcheries. Um, fun fact, I, you can guess who I learned this from, you. Um, Hatcheries uh, were the world's first hatchery was way back in the 15th century. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, Maybe inadvertently. Well, you know, there, there was this great excitement about hatcheries at first. <laughs> what they were thinking, this is in Europe, what they were thinking is, wow, just think of it. You know, we let the fishermen, because the, the, the salmon uh, stocks were declining because they were just you know, had really bad fishing practices and just throwing nets across the river. And the thing about salmon is that they all swim with great determination in the same direction. Mm-hmm. So they're just born suckers for nets, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so when they started first coming up with this hatchery uh, thing, they, they, they thought, wow, you know, everybody can just do whatever they want and we can always make more fish. This will be great. Um, but it turned out not to work like that. Uh, most of the hatcheries failed. Well, why? I mean, it seems, it seems like it would make sense on, you know, on its face. Well, you know, nature is kind of difficult to reproduce. And one of the first problems was what I was telling you about how all the, uh, salmon in different rivers are different. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't understand that. So they didn't understand that if you took eggs that weren't from that river and you put them in the river, that these were fish that would be totally unsuitable to that river and they wouldn't survive. Uh, It took a very long time to understand that. They didn't know much at all about, you know, they'd see see salmon going to sea. Well, first of all, you know, there was a time when they didn't even understand that these little fish that were born in the rivers 
uh, were salmon. They thought salmon were big fish that came in from the ocean. Which they are. <laughs> they, they, used to, they used to catch these little fish, which are baby salmon, and use them for fertilizer. Oh, yeah. Um, and then when they understood that it was the little fish that went to sea and they came back big fish, they thought they came back, you know, a few months later. They didn't yeah. understand that there's a whole cycle that's years. Right, um, right. So, you know, not not understanding anything about the life cycle of salmon, the, the hatcheries were uh, pretty generally all failures. And that is historically speaking. What about today? Uh, today, only most of them are. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, not much better, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's a few places where hatcheries have worked, and sometimes it's kind of hard to explain why. Um, uh, first of all, hatcheries uh, can bring about an improvement in a river that's dead to salmon. Okay. You, know, you can create a new, you can create a new subspecies for that river. They've done that in a few places in Scotland. Mm-hmm. They have, uh, hatcheries have helped restore rivers when there was a serious effort at restoring the habitat. Uh, um, that's the first thing you have to do. You have to clean up the pollution and all of the things that are making the river uninhabitable. Or, you know, the new fish that you put in won't do any better. You know, yeah. the Columbia fish don't do well in the Columbia because it's backed by dams, and it doesn't matter how many hatchery fish you put in, they're going to have the same problem. Right. Uh, uh, they've had some success in restoring the Penobscot in Maine uh, by tearing down some dams, but um, the real key to the thing is they cleaned up the river, they cleaned up the pollution. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in all cases where they've had any success with hatcheries, the first thing that happened was they cleaned up the pollution. Yeah. Well, we don't, that, that's not a quick fix. No. So we don't, we don't like that. Right. <laughs> um, it's going to take too long. Um, what about, what about farming? I mean, so, so hatcheries, you know, you have to really make a comprehensive effort, which is, important and we should definitely be doing more of that but um what about the idea that you can just control their environment and grow them and well this is a different this is a a different project with a different goal Mm -hmm. hatcheries are trying to build uh wild stocks um farms are trying to create an alternative to wild stocks um this has nothing to do with wild stocks and, and, and they hope it never will. It needs to be separate. Right. Um, the, uh, one of the problems with uh, farm salmon is that, um, you know, whenever you farm anything, um, farmers replace nature. And instead of, instead of there being this, uh, um, Darwinian process of natural selection, you now have human selection, uh, which is why, you know, a cow is a completely unnatural animal. Uh, You know, they talk about they want, they don't want genetically modified food for their cows. But they don't think about the fact that their cows are already genetically modified. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And 
<clears throat> the same thing happens with salmon. And what they do with salmon is they have selected them to be really fast growing so that you don't have any more time and expense in bringing them to market size than you have to. Um, and, and, and that's it. You know, they, they, they don't, um, they don't have any of those skills that wild salmon have. They're, they're basically fast growing dummies. And, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's... They, they sometimes escape <clears throat> from the pens and they're almost, almost all farm fish for some reason are Atlantic. Uh, even the ones that are farmed in the Pacific. In in, in the Pacific, when they escape from the pen, everybody gets very excited, but they really shouldn't because uh, it's a hard, fast rule of biology that animals of different genera cannot mate. So an Atlantic salmon cannot mate with a Pacific salmon. So a farmed Atlantic salmon cannot mate with a wild Pacific salmon. All they could do is mate with other farmed Atlantic salmon and create their own colony, which would not compete with wild salmon because it doesn't have any of the skills. Right. Uh, and so usually what happens when you have a large escape of uh, farmed salmon in the Pacific is they vanish. You know, they probably all die off. Mm -hmm. But in the Atlantic, it's another story because they can go out and mate with the wild salmon. And then what happens is they're dumbing down the wild salmon. Yeah. Oh, my God. So um, don't have kids with a fast growing dummy. I'm going to go to college. <laughs> you, you, all right. You, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> It's a good tip. I would say that's a good tip. So, um, okay. So aquaculture, I mean, we have like an insatiable demand for, for salmon, it seems like. I mean, I think that consumption rates of seafood are increasing. And in the United States, certainly salmon is top of that list next to like- well, that, that is right. exactly why farm salmon is important. Right, right. Because um, it's providing- um, it's providing this fish that people like, and that's affordable at mm -hmm. a time when there's, there's less and less fish available and it's more and more unaffordable. So it's, it serves a, a useful purpose. Uh, it has a number of things wrong with it. it escapes, which I just mentioned is one of them. It also mm -hmm. attracts sea lice, uh, just a, a whole list of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, the, in, in, including the fact you know, I originally, when I wrote my cod book, I was opposed to farmed fish. Right. Yeah. The, re the reason I was opposed to it is because they were feeding it ground up wild fish. So mm -hmm. that if you ate a farm fish, actually more wild fish had died than if you just ate a wild fish. Right. Um, but the fish farmers, uh, fish farming is dominated by Norwegians. Um and, you know, being good Scandinavians, they like to think of themselves as progressive people. Mm -hmm. they're, pro they're problem solvers. Right. right. And uh, they, they are aware of these problems. You go and talk to them. They aren't covering up anything. They, they, they are completely aware of all of these problems. And they're trying to solve them. They're trying to figure out types of feed that don't involve wild fish. They're trying to figure out... Um, how not to attract uh, uh, sea lice or how to control sea lice. 
including using some fish that eat sea lice. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, they did this for a while and then they, they used too many of them. They were overfishing these fish. So then what do they do? You know, they go to their natural skill set. They start farming these fish that eat sea lice. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they're, they're trying to work on these problems. And I, I think there's a lesson here. Uh, I've been involved with environmental issues for a long time. And I more and more feel that um, you really should try to come up with solutions other than calling for a ban. Okay. Because um, calling for a ban is just a dialogue killer. Yeah. Like this, this head of the CEO of one of the big um, Norwegian uh, fish farming companies in Scotland said to me, you know, I talk to environmentalists all the time. And I happen to know he does because I know a number of environmentalists who he's talked to. Mm -hmm. But if I have a guy who says, you know, fish farming has to be banned, I don't have anything to say to him. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that in many cases, the best solution is, is to try to work with people and come up with solutions rather than saying, don't do this, say you have to do this right. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder how far this thinking could go. I mean, I've for years now been opposing uh, this horrible mine in uh, Alaska, in Bristol Bay. Uh, gold mine uh, from a mining company that has a history of, of um, you know, putting their toxic waste in earthen dams and it slips into and poisons rivers. And, um, and so, you know, the thing we've all been trying to do is stop this mine from happening. But another solution might be to say, okay, you can have this mine, but first you have to figure out a way that, to do it that doesn't endanger the environment. Yeah. I mean, yes, but then, but then they can, they can come up with a whole lot of reasons, but like there are always unintended consequences. Like you open that can of worms and then, you know, you don't know what can happen. And also you don't know if they're going to actually do it right. You know, you can say one thing and then we know that a lot of times companies don't follow through. Well, do you remember when the United States used to have this organization called the EPA? (laughs) I've never heard of it. <laughs> Certainly doesn't exist anymore today. I mean, no. but yeah. you can, you know, government can regulate and control industry and make sure that they don't do polluting things. Yeah. I mean, not anymore. Maybe historically, maybe that would have been a good idea four years ago. But. Right. Well, four, four years ago, we had the pebble mine stopped. It was completely stopped. Wow. And then Trump yeah. came in and a new governor of Alaska came in and, uh, it got a new life. Yeah. Well, I'm, I think that that is, you make it a, a really great point. And, um, you know, I think it is important. Like to me, I think aquaculture kind of gets a bad rap, but, um, and certainly there are a lot of, you know, bad actors in this space. But like last week, uh, I talked to one CEO of a third generation salmon farm in Norway and it's the, it's, um, Quare Arctic and they like, they're doing some really impressive, really impressive things. And I feel like they kind of have thought through, um, you know, like uh, there's always going to be more issues, but all, you know, the no, issues I mean, that they're working on these things, they're working on developing new feed and new kinds of protein. There's yeah. Soldier fly. They're trying to get protein from, and uh, you know, all, all kinds of things like these people 
um, its business started in Norway by people who thought they were doing this great thing. They were doing uh, sustainable uh, fishing that was affordable, and it was a really good thing. And mm-hmm. then it turns out it's not really that sustainable. Mm-hmm. And they're very upset by that. And they're very upset by environmentalists um, portraying them as the bad guys because they always thought they were going to be the, the good guys. Mm-hmm. Of course, they also have been making money beyond their wildest dreams. Yeah, yeah. But they've been, they've been you know, providing a lot of fish for people who I really do think it is going to be the only way that we are able to feed protein to two people. I, th- um, I, mean, I think so too. Yeah. I mean, people, we listen, we could be eating a lot more vegetables, that's for sure. But I think in terms of like, um, but also, you know, you, you look at the Atlantic, you look at countries like, uh, um, Scotland and Norway and, and uh, Ireland countries where, uh, salmon is a way of life, mm-hmm. you know, and then, uh, people went in there and, um, bought out fisheries, closed down the fisheries. Now there's no more wild salmon available. People accept that because they still have salmon. Right. When you go to a market, it's not like here where you have a choice between wild salmon or farm salmon. It's just salmon. Yeah. And if you know what's going on, you know that it's all farmed. But uh, but it's salmon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not bad. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting what's happened. I mean, I much as a matter of taste, prefer wild salmon. But a lot of people don't. I mean, what's happened is exactly what happened with meat. You know, meat used to be game. And then after the Civil War in this country, uh, they started having more and more domestic meat. And this meat was grained with fat and tender and had a very mild flavor and people loved it. They love these steaks and, um, you know, and then they have some venison and it's, it's They're like, Ugh. And very strong tasting gamey. They say, yeah, I mean, what else would game be? <laughs> and, <laughs> and a lot of people just, you know, so it's become like this, this kind of luxury thing for, for gourmets. Um, they have, to have like grass fed, you know, no grain. Well, to have, to have wild. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, to have game, to eat game, wild yeah. meat. Um, people are very happy with farm meat. And this is happening with fish. Uh, I've talked to many people who say they prefer farm salmon because it's fatter and milder. Yeah. Exactly like what happened to beef. Right. I can tell you, I don't particularly care for coho salmon. That's the one that is like a little too. Uh, I mean, I don't know if gamey is the right word, but it's like, it's a little too <laughs> flavorful, <laughs> um, uh, really? strong. Yeah, I, I really, it's I, like, the, I, I, think, I think sockeye is stronger. I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I mean, everybody has these prejudices. Chum right. salmon, people don't eat much, um, <clears throat> which is why another name for it is dog salmon. Oh, it's nice. all about the fact that it is the least attractive salmon. Like just to look at, just to, yeah, yeah even, yeah. even before and, the transformation. <laughs> right. And, and it's, uh, uh, you know, it's the salmon that nobody wants. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an American hang up in Asia. They love chum salmon. 
Well, I mean, let's be honest. I feel like most Americans don't really ever see like a whole fish, you know, like it's, it's already filleted and totally cut up at the grocery store. I think that, um, well, yeah, if you buy your fish at grocery stores, right? Yeah, yeah. It's close well, to fish markets. Right. And I, I don't know, in a lot of places in America, uh, they probably don't have much in the way of fish markets. Yes, I think that's probably. When a cod book came out, I was touring, and I was invited to do this TV show in a fish market in Chicago. And it was really awkward, because to me, the stuff didn't look good at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, okay, so we, so we have to. I, I have a few more questions before um, we we have to write wrap up. But then, um, you know, my first question would be: Are there certain conservation programs or policies happening in the U.S. that are kind of are working to address this declining salmon population? Like, what needs to happen at the political level besides that we need to have like an actual EPA <laughs> actual <laughs> agency dedicated to this? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people in a lot of state governments that are, are determined to do something in, in New England. I mean, they're really trying to turn around Maine. They tried to turn around the Connecticut River, but they've kind of failed. In the Merrimack, they failed, but there's some hope for Maine rivers. Um, in, in the West Coast, in uh, California and Oregon and um, Washington, there uh, there's a strong popular sentiment that uh, things have to be done and some dams have been torn down. And uh, a poll in Oregon showed that people overwhelmingly thought that preserving salmon was more important to the Columbia River than uh, any economic activity. Hmm. Uh, So, you know, uh, people are kind of uh, coming around to it. And there's all sorts of things being done. You know, there's, there's places in Washington State where they're actually taking big old trees and, and, and chaining them in the rivers, in the middle of rivers to create the effect of, uh, you know, the old growth forest that used to fall in the river. Um, uh, you know, people are doing things and, and public wants them to do things. Uh, um, it always ends up being a fight uh, about the economy, though, you know, like... Uh, Right. Um, well, in Idaho, in Idaho, they've they've changed the rivers to make them seagoing ports and base the whole economy of the state on shipping stuff to the uh, Pacific. And so it's very hard to get popular support for measures to to save rivers. You know what? It is actually amazing. You you write in your book, you said, taking um, a long historical view, it can be demonstrated that protecting the environment guarantees jobs and destructive practices cost them. But then basically in the times of like any kind of economic crisis, this this goes out the window. And um, I, I just kept on thinking, like, why why is this so hard to understand? <laughs> what are we missing here? I, I mean, if you, look at, if you look at what's going on now with this pandemic. Mm hmm. You look at how people, the hell with the economy, they're doing what they have to do to stop this thing. Mm-hmm. And and I think, why have we never been able to get that message across about climate change? Climate yeah. change is going to be far worse than this pandemic. And in fact, mm-hmm. this pandemic may be a result of climate change. Right. Um, but we have not been able to mobilize people for climate change the way we have for this pan- pandemic. 
Um, yeah, and I could argue we have not mobilized people fast enough for this for this current situation. But yeah, I mean, I think that like I think you're you're absolutely right. It's also interesting, you know. You say that there is a lot of support for. Um, you know, bringing back what was it, salmon in the Columbia River, or like the, for for the health of the river. What you what you just said that people think that that's like a primary. You know, that's a very important thing. I mean, people think climate change, oh, like, is real. And we need to do something about it. If you look at like, I don't know. I mean, like seventy some percent of people like believe in climate change. A hundred percent of them should, but it's still like it seems like there is the demand there, the the desire, but it's just I don't know what kind of gets in the way, like economic political interests, corporate interests? Yeah, I think the problem is that you're not going to have to pay the price tomorrow. Yeah. Like you will if you don't do social distancing right now. Right, right. You know? um, it's it's a little in the future, not that much in the future. But I mean, what will it take when 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 tsunamis and hurricanes are washing away our, our cities and and uh, there isn't enough food to eat. And, uh, you know, uh, how much is it going to take before people say, oh, this is really serious? Right. You know, I got to pay attention. It'll be too late by then. Right. <laughs> so, um, OK, on a on a on a lighter note, um, what uh, can I can try and lighten it up? What is the was this your favorite subject to, to write about? I mean, you've written you've clearly written a lot about seafood. Was this um, like oysters, cod, just salmon, I mean, milk is not seafood, but like, was this your, your favorite subject? I don't know. You know, I, when I write a book, I get completely involved in it. Yeah. Um, your publicist I, is probably like, yes, salmon. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> salmon. Yeah, salmon. <laughs> no, but, I mean, it, it is right now. And I, 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 I'll just say this, that I, I think that salmon is the most interesting animal I've ever encountered. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I had, I, it was just a complete surprise for me. I, I just, I loved learning all about this. Um, so now I'm kind of the, at the point where I'm like, I don't know if I ever want to eat salmon again, or I don't know if I want to eat wild salmon again. So what would you say, what would you say to consumers? Like, what can we be doing to... You can, you can eat wild salmon. Wild salmon comes from... Uh... Uh, like my friend Taya Thomas, you know, it comes from sustainable good fisheries. Uh, um, so it's not like we need to be limiting our consumption. I mean, the price point is already yeah. probably pretty exclusive. As no, if anything, the question is, should we be eating farm salmon? But we, we definitely there's no problem with eating wild salmon. Oh, hmm. interesting. Okay, so then what else could we be doing um, besides not actually being human beings living near rivers and well anything you polluted. can do to reduce carbon emissions help you know a guy driving an suv in indiana is actually killing fish in the atlantic yeah well i have a subaru so um <laughs> not my problem right now i'm not part I, of that problem easy for me to say i live in new york i don't have anything Right, right. I have even left this block in so long. I well, can't that's what it's like past the Columbus Avenue. Yeah, right. Yes, um, I feel you there. I feel like a lot of people are are in the same boat. Um, well, hopefully, you know, not in like Arkansas or wherever they're not social distancing, but we are definitely. Um, none of us are going anywhere at the moment, but okay. So it's just general, like, reduce your carbon footprint in in any way that you can. 
possibly do. Yeah, and you know what we have to do? Let's face it. We have to elect good people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> and we all know who aren't good people. Yeah. And, you know, we have to elect people who take climate change seriously, and we have to elect people who want to do projects uh, to ameliorate the environment and want to strengthen, not weaken the EPA and uh, um, and control uh, fossil fuels. And, you know, fossil fuels should become a thing of the past. Well, we're bringing coal back, don't you know? Yeah, well, clean coal. <laughs> clean, clean coal, yeah. Yes. Oh, God. Um, all right. Well, um, that is, yeah, I think it, it always it always comes down to, you know, elected officials and to um, making decisions, you know, in your own life. I mean, doing what you can on a personal level and everyday level. And yeah, then I mean, the, the hard thing is to find politicians who are willing to give people the tough news. Yeah. You know, to say to coal miners, uh, no, we're not going to continue mining coal, but we're going to try to find jobs for you in industries that aren't harmful. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of those, actually. Hillary Clinton actually said that in West Virginia. Uh, you can take a look at how well she did there. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, um, okay, so last question: What's what's next for you? Are you are you going to take a break? Are you? Um, can I expect to have you on in like a, a year and a half or sooner? Sooner. Sooner. Uh, oh my god, I'm so excited! What's next? I have, I, I have a book coming out about fly fishing, about the, the uh, whole history and development of fly fishing, and why people do it, and what it means. And uh, well, I'm not a. <laughs> Well, I'm not a fly fisherman, but you well, know you what? Don't, you, you don't have to be. You read this book so you'll understand why why people are. Perfect. And, uh, fly fishing is actually becoming more and more popular. And actually, the big area of growth is women. More and more women are fly fishing. Interesting. Well, I'm sure if any author could make me interested in fly fishing, it is 100% you. So everything, you, you, your books are incredible. And I am so appreciative for you coming back on the show and talking to me all about salmon today. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, okay, so uh, I am just going to give a big thanks to our sponsor. Our show engineer is... Matt, who is bearing with me um, for today, even though this episode went over. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.